The microphone's not on, is it? Yeah. No. I, I turned it on. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK. This is a reading from the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Thin sowing means thin reaping. The more you sow, the more you reap. Each one should give what he has decided in his own mind, not grudgingly, but because he is made to, for God loves a cheerful giver. And there is no limit to the blessings which God can send you. You will make sure that you will always have all you need for yourselves in every possible circumstance and still have something to spare for all sorts of good things. As scripture says, he was free in almsgiving and gave to the poor. His good deed will never be forgotten. My name is Aidan Troy. We're here at St. Joseph's Church, Avenue Wash in Paris. There's a lot of traffic. No traffic. We could try um, the dining room, the far side, because the walkers are now finished. And it's the other side from the here, you know. But then the air conditioning comes on at the most unexpected moments. You know, you can hear. And there's times it goes quiet. I think it must be the change of lights or something. I think I should record before we start, like, mm. um, a minute of... Uh, traffic. Of traffic, yeah. Mm. I think the worst part of all is the first morning you wake up on a new assignment. You can't remember which side the light is on in the bed. You can't remember where the door is. First of all, you don't know any sounds, smells, all the things that are completely new to you. No matter how often you visit it, there is a sort of a difference happens that when you come to live in the place, this is now what I call home. Paris sounds amazingly different in this sense. First of all, the sound of people speaking in different languages. The sounds of people going in and out of shops just seems somewhat different. I don't know what it is. It's hard to explain that. But it was almost like that the atmosphere of the city was just so different from what I've been used to.
Belfast has harder sounds. Where I live in North Belfast, there's no grass. The monastery was one of the few places where there was green space. There was no grass. Paris is magnificent for its parks and they're so conspicuously absent in parts of Belfast. Where I lived in Holy Cross was right on the interface that divided the community in two. And so there were times when it wasn't always that safe to be at the perimeter. And that's how Belfast came across to you. There was a place of huge warmth and love within oftentimes the walls of the house and huge dangers in the street. And that's a big difference here. I have never felt one moment of apprehension in the streets in Paris. Belfast is a city which at its very core is torn in two. And even when there is peace and tranquility, there is part of its emotion I always felt looking one way, namely to London, and there's part of its heart looking south to Dublin. And that has been going on for centuries. My very first memory of coming to Paris was back in the 70s and I'd been attending a meeting in Rome, an international meeting. I was a young priest at the time and the priest I was with suggested that we stop in Paris on the way back, precisely in this place here. And I remember this was almost too much for me. I had come from small town Bray in County Wicklow and now I'd seen the Colosseum, I'd seen St Peter's, I'd seen the Vatican and now I'm going to see the Arc de Triomphe and I'm going to see the Eiffel Tower and I'll always remember it was just like you know needing to pinch yourself to say am I really here? And when you came back when they told you you were coming back I went numb because I wouldn't have chosen to come here it was almost like a bereavement. I'm leaving somewhere where I've fallen in love. And that falling in love was very much to do with sort of pain and suffering and protest and suicide and poverty and deprivation and lack of reconciliation and all of that. But I think the overwhelming thing was I know I'm going to be broken-hearted leaving these people. Yeah, some of the ones here. Um, older posts again. So I've written far more here than I than I actually realised. Um, yeah, let's see where this goes because I know it started sometime around November. Let's see. Um, let's see what date that was. Um, I just see was the one before that. Possibly there was. Um, yeah, this has been a different Christmas Day for me. This is Christmas Day 2008. 
This has been a different Christmas day for me. Believe it or not, I have never spent a Christmas day except with family over the past 44 years as part of a religious community. Now I'm living in Paris where there's just one other priest. By our rule, there are needed to have three for a community. So the question of Christmas dinner came up. The other priest had an invitation to dinner, which he accepted. I also had some very kind and generous invitations, but I decided to have a different Christmas day. So, off I set after last Mass for a walk. What a surprise. The streets were crowded, the buses and trains were running, a lot of shops were open, restaurants were full, queues for the cinema, and I bought a French newspaper dated the 25th of December, which had been printed overnight. I really enjoyed a good, brisk walk, and then later on, with my paper to read, went to get something to eat. On the 26th of December, I leave for Bray and a visit to family and friends. In one sense, Christmas started in an horrendous way for me because I was afraid of it. And it ended up far, far better than I thought. It was horrendous for me to end up walking around the streets until I began to think, this is what hundreds of other people are doing. I was born in Bray in County Wicklow into a very traditional Catholic family. My mother was an extremely religious lady. I was the second of three children. My brother and myself would have become altar servers. I used to sort of help out a little bit in the church outside of the duties of an altar server. Money wasn't very plentiful and I took a job delivering milk and it just mean getting up on Saturday and Sunday morning at half four in the morning. That would have been only about eight or nine at the time. Probably it'd be totally illegal now. And I would deliver all the bottles up one side until one day I remember the horse ran away with me. I went to school to the Christian Brothers and during that time I never felt I was going to be a priest. But I never ruled out totally the fact that I might have that calling. And it's as vague as that. And I'll always remember the last time I saw my mother alive. The morning I was leaving to join the order I joined, the Passionists, the last word she said to me was this, if it's not for you, come home. There's no disgrace in that. And I thought that was a tremendous thing for me because Ireland had a tradition of mother's vocations. And I went feeling absolutely free. If after a few months the priest in charge had said to me, listen, that's not for you, I honestly would have been just as pleased. I knew I joined for one reason, and only one reason. That connection with a call of God. I'm not so wedded to me being a priest. I never was. But I'm still wedded to the idea that I'm still called. And if I wasn't called now in Paris, I would go. I know I would have a very tough time because I'm too old to do anything really. 
And I'm not afraid of that. That's not why I'm staying. You know, there's a piece in the gospel, to dig I am not able, to beg I am ashamed. Well, I'm still able to dig a bit, and I'm not ashamed to beg. children of the upright are blessed. The good takes pity in them, conducts his affairs with honour. The just one will never waver, they will be remembered forever. There are a lot of uh, Lord speakers. Yeah. Where, where are they? I kept running yeah. into them. To the best uh, of my knowledge, Kay, they're so... That's lights. Yeah, here's one. The white ones, that's it. Run around underneath here. Is that? Is that that's one behind. Yeah. yeah. I'll show you where the system is. Okay. It used to be the key was left here, and you had many hands, like many cooks, working at it. Now, I've tried to tune it in as best I could, and this is it here. Now, this is the sound system controls. This is something to do with. It's to do with this. So we have the various microphones. Um, this one, the level control for all loudspeakers. The first one it says there. The priest radio mic. The choir mic the choir second mic and this one here is the lectern from which I was reading according to that but that doesn't actually match what it says here you see because it says here that the master violin control is at number 8 after a four year term we know that there's going to be a review but we don't know if we're going to be changed so I had a meeting with my superior and I said, I would like to stay here in Belfast, but I would not necessarily want to continue as parish priest and as local superior of the religious community because I'd already done that for seven years and I really felt that I was becoming more and more engaged in matters in the street and in the homes and even in wider afield. So I went on holidays then and about a week into my holidays, I was with some friends and my phone rang and it was my superior and he simply said, I want you to go to Paris. And I said, I need to think about it. And he said, could you tell me by tonight? And I said, no, I could tell you by tomorrow, though. I knew, I suppose, from the first moment I was going to say yes. Because when I joined into this religious group, one of the commitments I took was obedience. Once I was asked, the die was cast. And therefore, it was with a great amount of sadness. The next morning, I phoned him and I said, when do I have to be there? And he said, the 30th of September. And that was it. The implication was definitely, 
you're finished here in Belfast, so we're asking you to go to Paris. My feeling was one of complete sort of emptiness, numbness. I really thought this would happen at some stage. I'd hoped it wouldn't. I felt for the last year or so, it was like a guillotine was hanging over me. And there was almost a sense of relief that when it fell, well, that's it. Now I know. In fact, I had reached a point where I realised that the parish where I was serving and the religious community that I was serving would be better served by somebody other than me. Because I felt that it could well be said against me that I was becoming more and more engaged outside of the strictly religious parish activities and that I was giving a lot of time out in the streets. So I could sort of understand... Did you ask for an explanation? No. Because I knew I wasn't going to get one. I presume, although I've never asked, I presume everybody else was transferred the same way. I don't think I was singled out for any different treatment. But after 44 years within the religious congregation, which is the length I had served, I don't think a phone call on a mobile phone is sufficient. The manner of it was not the colonel, no. It was the leaving, without shadow of doubt. I don't know. We shouldn't treat each other that way. And I would not have missed the years 2001 to 2008 in Belfast for anything. It was like falling in love and then being told the affair is over. And it was that sort of a feeling. I don't want this to be over. What did you fall in love with in Belfast? I think I fell in love with engagement at a very, very human level. In the parish where I was, there were approximately 8,000 people. Anybody who would think that those 8,000 people belong to the church hasn't lived on the real planet for a long time. You felt they belonged to you because they accepted you. It was many times conflict, many times poverty, many times fun, many times laughter, but that constant, constant engagement. I wouldn't have missed the last seven years of that engagement for anything. I, at a rather latish stage in my life, learned more about human nature and about life from people like that. And anything that I can say about any topic, be it violence, be it suicide, be it anything else, I have never learned it out of a book. Somebody has told me what it tastes like and what it smells like and what it feels like. Where you actually begin the engagement with people at that level, it makes you different. I miss that immediacy. But that happened 
and it's finished now as far as I'm concerned. It has to be or I would go mad. If I thought of this too much, I would become extremely bitter and I can't afford to do that because it would be totally immoral and wrong to the people here. Mm. You don't believe that? I was wondering. Yeah, well, okay, that's a fair comment. Years ago, I used to keep a diary. I remember against all the rules during my novitiate, I kept a diary, and that was back in the 60s. Reading that diary now is absolutely fascinating because the severity of the life was just so incredible. So after I was here about a month, I thought it would be a good record for myself. And I got a little link put on to the parish website so that if anybody wanted to read it, they could. It just says here, this blog has been started on Sunday the 23rd of November 2008 to keep in contact with the people in the parish of St. Joseph Paris and with the people anywhere in the world whom I have met. In particular, there may be people in Belfast who may wish to keep in contact. I've just returned to Paris yesterday following a 36-hour visit to Belfast. I mean, I just felt it so strange, you know, that I walked down the street and people stopped me and saying, I thought you'd gone away. And it was lovely. It was just lovely. Not so much the fact of being recognised, but the fact of feeling you were home. And I didn't feel, you know, sometimes you do something and you say, oh, I shouldn't have done that because I feel worse when I come back. I don't think I did, actually. Because the next day I wrote a piece, too. It says, it may take some time for people to know of this blog. However, I look forward to hearing from people, both here in Paris or wherever, on Saturday night last. Then it goes into, actually, it's a piece just about the parish social that was held here. Over 300 parishioners attended and enjoyed a dinner and entertainment. So even at that very early stage, I can see myself getting involved. And then I have, the weather is very cold. Now, Paris is a radically different city in that sense. Nobody lives in this street belong to the parish. Some great people who come here travel here every Sunday morning, 25, 30 kilometres. We would have over 40 different nationalities represented. I went out to visit somebody in a hospital and I took a metro and then I took a bus run for about 25 minutes and I must say it was an eye-opener for me to see the difference between the leafy suburb that I'm living in here which is enormously tourist and privileged and then to move farther and farther out and to see graffiti for instance absolutely everywhere. I'm living, as it were, in the neutral zone here, where, in fact, immigration is not a big issue. But as soon as I go outside of this, I begin to realise this is not Paris where I'm living. I'm on trial here in the best sense of the word. And whatever hurts I have, I never try to let it play. I have never, 
ever spoken in preaching or outside of the blog about my past. I'm almost like, I think it was Melchizedek in the scriptures, they said he had neither ancestors, neither beginning. And I'm almost like Melchizedek. And yet on the piece of paper on top of that it says there that that's the master volume control. Now I I don't have to know to switch. Oh. I don't know how, how it sounds. They would often have it on a stand and I can hear it quite clearly when they talk. It's the choir over there on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. If I can bring this over and see, is there any difference in how it sounds? I don't think there should be. This, I think, is the main one. And yet I, I can't understand, and honestly I can't understand why. If I was to announce now, the next hymn in your hymnal is number... 121. I imagine that should be heard. I don't know whether they don't switch it on or When I got there, the Holy Cross issue had started. The protest at the school had started on the 19th of June 2001. I met the parents and I asked them, what do you want to do? Because I knew nothing about this situation. I'd lived outside Ireland, never mind outside the north, for seven years. And they said, we want to go to school with the children. It was that type of raw engagement of saying, well, I will try the best I can to fulfil what I believe is a very basic right of yours, to take your child to school. That was the falling in love, that you became part of a journey with people. I had never in my life before ministered at that close level to the ground, because oftentimes our training puts us almost at an intellectual sort of move, and you say, I preach, I baptise, I do weddings, I do funerals and all that, and I'm not decrying that in one ounce or one tiny bit. Now, that would also be part of why the wrench was so difficult. Because when you've walked, you know, it's a cliche, but when you've walked the walk, it is very difficult to say goodbye. I had spent most of my life as a preacher talking the talk, and it's quite easy to talk the talk. And unfortunately, the history of the Catholic Church shows that a lot of the time when the talk and the talk was going on, there was a lot of other awful things happening at the same time. Once I was asked by the parents the first morning, will you walk with us, you might be our insurance to save the lives of our children. Once I walked one step on that road, I was committed to being the last step off the road. Walked every day four times up with the children, 
back down with the parents, up with the parents in the afternoon to collect them, back down with the children, unbroken from the 3rd of September to the 23rd of November. It always looked as if we were doing a long, long walk in Parisian terms, like the Champs-Élysées or something. In fact, we were walking a very short stretch of road. We are walking past probably 20 to 25 houses, and in the gate, and that was it. I've still seen the faces of the children going to school. I will never forget the look of absolute terror. I'm not a small person, but I was terrified because there was no script for this, and that's why it was so difficult. When you went up the road, you never knew on two consecutive mornings what you were going to find. It could be relatively peaceful. It could be mayhem. I was abused every day. I was spat at. There were posters held up saying Father Troy's a paedophile. There were the most horrendous pornographic pictures held out to the children. Masks were worn. Now, masks are frightening. There was constant intimidation by way of conversation, shouting, screaming, placards. This was way outside my league. Way outside my league. It gave me a sense of how the most ordinary people would have gone through hell and high water to protect their children and to make sure that their dignity was respected. Now, I may have to get another chair. There's a few books here. So... What do we have here today? It's the report of the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse in the Republic of Ireland. The report was started in the year 2000, and this is 2009. However, it's a complete vindication of those who kept raising their voices and saying this is something that is totally wrong. It's the story of people, some of whom have died as a result of it, some of whom are certainly very, very broken. And I just call it the end of a weekend. At the three masses I celebrated this weekend, I spoke about the tragic failure in Ireland that led to the death and destruction of so many children's and young people's lives through abuse by some members of religious congregations. One young person was amazed that after so many days following the abuse report, there was no... Sorry, I just have to answer this. Hello? St. Joseph's? No, it's gone off really. It's unusual because normally after five you don't get too many calls. Just hopefully it won't go again. That's it now. But one thing is certain, people want to know who is going to take responsibility within the Irish church and the sinking feeling that I have was nobody. So that's the type of thing, I suppose, that you can put on a blog to say, here's how I'm feeling tonight, and that was Sunday night.
I was at a meeting on the 23rd of April 2003 and midway through the morning there was a knock at the door and somebody said they wanted to speak to me and it was to say that the police had discovered a body hanging from a tree in Holy Cross Monastery grounds and I was to come back immediately. As I drove up from London, I didn't know what to think. And I turned into the grounds of Holy Cross Monastery and there was a lot of police and they said to me, will you come round to your garden? There is a young man hanging from a tree. I, I didn't know what to think. I'd never seen this before. I'd seen car accidents before. I'd seen babies dying. I'd done all that, but I had never seen a person hanging from a tree. It was the most awful scene I have ever known. And the police said to me, do you know who it is? And I said, I don't. A car pulled up and these two or three men got out and they said, we know who that is. That is a 17-year-old young man called Philip MacTaggart. And you know his mother and you know his father. And we want you to come with us and tell his mother his father's at work. The worst moment of all was when we stepped outside. I mean, the ordinary language that you use on the occasion of a death really doesn't apply anymore. But the question that never goes away, and it starts immediately almost, is why? The community went into shock. People were terribly worried that he had hung himself in a church grounds because the community cemetery is right beside the tree. So it's almost like he hung himself outside the graveyard. In Ardoin, there are very few places to play football. There's very few places to recreate. And there's very few places to die if you don't die in your own house. And I think the monastery grounds provide it. A refuge. If I'm going to do this, where's the best place to do it? The monastery. Because nobody's going to see me. That was the first of two suicides in Holy Cross grounds. On the 14th of February 2004, after about 12 or 14 suicides in North and West Belfast in a period from Christmas Eve to that date, we had a young fellow who hung himself on the end of the scaffolding at the top of the tower of the church. And we started all over again. But by that stage, we had buried so many it was becoming absolutely frightening. You began to enter into a world where the language was different, the emotions were different, certainly the reasoning was different. I'm still not sure what to make out of it all. Is suicide regarded as a sin? Suicide is regarded as sin if taken in cold reason. And I'm not sure if that's not a contradiction in terms. But in objective morality, as you ask the question, there's no use in me qualifying it. I have to say, yes, it is a sin. There's no doubt about that. Okay, I'll just try this one first, will I? Yeah. The older I get, the more I'm becoming convinced that if I lost a belief that all that happens in this world is connected to the afterlife, then I think I would cease doing what I'm doing. 
yet this this will be better still I think I'm quite happy to know that I'm not living in the full brightness of actually what's going on or in the full truth or the full beauty or the full love that to me is an enormous act of faith and I think if that ever went I would then become a sort of efficient church person who does things because people turn up and they want services but there wouldn't be anything inside me that would really make me say I'm really on fire about this and I am on fire about it with all the tragedy of abuse and all the things that happened I still have a fundamental core belief that ultimately goodness will win out All I can sort of try and do is say, well, my journey is in the light of eternity. I do the very best I can on this earth, but I don't believe it all finishes here. It makes me, in one sense, almost more nervous that I could well be missing opportunities of this kingdom here on earth because for a lot of my life, I really never saw much connection with the afterlife. I thought it was pretty important just to do everything well here. But what came afterwards? Well, that's in the hands of God, we don't know. We used to get these awful stories about all the people that were going to be damned and all the people that were going to be put down to the lowest point of hell and all that. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe that's what it's about. I don't. Like if somebody comes to me and says, I can't observe all the things that your church tells me about, but do you know what? I have found truth and I found love and I found justice and I found it's almost like the way Christ says you know you're not far from the kingdom and I would be far more interested in building the kingdom than building the church I don't think the church should be built I think the church must be in service of building the kingdom of truth of justice of honesty of love and if you're not building those then I think I'm not that pushed about religion If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one.